Well, good evening. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Kind of a different energy uh, in the afternoon here. I like it. Uh, I was away at the men's retreat and uh, came back a day early and uh, enjoyed the half marathon that was here on the island. And um, good to be here with you today. Uh, Kids are with us, and so I tried extra hard to write a shorter sermon. And if you've been coming here, you know that just never, ever happens. And I just am not promising it today either. I'm just saying. But uh, I did try, and it may be shorter. And so um, uh, let's, let's go for it. Uh, would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, thank you that we can come together like this on this evening. We pray for your presence to be felt and... Uh, for you to touch our hearts and our minds. I pray that the kids can enjoy the service as well. And I pray that every single person, uh, no matter where they're at in life or life stage, might be able to have at least one really good takeaway uh, that can be seed in their heart and their life and can bear much fruit in the seasons to come. So we look to you uh, now for your guidance and for your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is quite a chapter. Uh, There are some really, really good things in here. And when you first read it, it seems rather complicated, like there's a lot of words. But really, it's simple. And Paul is making a couple of very simple points. And what I wanted to do today was to draw out two basic points, one building on the other. And if you look, there's other things, of course, you can get out from it. But I want to focus on two uh, major principles, uh, threads uh, in the passage, in the chapter today. Uh, I am a pretty um, kind of an intentional person. And one of the Uh, things that I believe about life is that nobody is smart enough or uh, competent enough or lucky enough or uh, anything enough to do as well as they need to do without a support system. So life sort of comes down down to the line and when you are tested, when a season or a circumstance surprises you, when your character is uh, put to the test and you're cut and you bleed, what are you going to bleed? How is this going to turn out? And the answer to those set of questions really depends on, in my opinion, not on how smart you are or how experienced you are, but really what kind of support system you have. I believe this, and I've practiced this, and I'm kind of uh, uh, just, it's a guarded priority and value in my life. And so I'm in this season of ministry and life, and I said, you know, I need to refresh my support system. And so I've been assessing what that looks like. And so I've been putting together a uh, refreshed uh, list of mentors. And uh, I recently recruited two new mentors. And uh, one of them asked me this question this past week. And it's kind of surprised me, but it was a really good question. The question was this, what's the one thing that helps you when you are flatlining in your life? If you feel stuck 
What's the one thing? If you had to choose one thing. I started making a list in my head. I thought running. Uh, I like running. It helps. But that's not quite it. Uh, I love good food. Good eats. And uh, so is that it? And uh, I thought about the different restaurants and different foods. No, that's not quite it either. Uh, what might it be? Movies. I really like watching movies. I like spending time with family, friends, mentors. And then I, I realized what the answer was. For me, the meaning of life is wrapped up in this idea of people. People are everything to me. And if I had to choose one thing, I would not choose good eats or movies or running or uh, going on a beautiful hike. None of these things measure up when compared to people. I really value the presence and activity and the proximity of people in my life. Having good friends, having my family around me, being dumb and silly with my kids. And dancing when I shouldn't. And not wearing things I should not be wearing. It's just so fun to be with uh, friends. And then I realized that people are really burdensome too. They, they cost me emotionally and financially. And uh, they're annoying. And you know they're, they're, they're just around me when I don't want them to be. And so there's a beauty and there's a burden to this idea of people. I think about my kids and just the explosion of love I experience every time I walk in through the door. I cannot put my bag down. There's literally kids simultaneously trying to jump off the middle of the staircase down to the bottom landing. And I have to catch them, and I want to. It's an explosion of love. I think about the debt that I feel to my wife, whom God has used to... uh, just work on my character and show me love and grace and acceptance and stability and support. Where would I be? Who would I be without my wife, the debt I owe to her? My parents who sacrificed and who love me and who continue to be emotional safety nets for me. I think about the friends and all the wonderful times we've had, the mentors who've spoken into my life. Words of truth and affirmation and direction who've uh, gotten messy with me, gotten in there and sifted through the pieces of my life and season and have spoken prophetic words of truth. How valuable, how beautiful are the feet of these people in my life? What would I trade them for? Where would I be without them? And then there's this question. As much as I value people, they come and go. So what is really being conveyed to me through people? What's the thing that I receive through people? When you think about the people in your life, what do they give to you? What's the gift? And I want to suggest to you today that at their best, what they give to you that lasts, that remains, is actually Jesus. And so two things we'll look at today. God's word, which is the word logos or logos, and that the Bible says is Jesus Christ. And then Paul here actually doesn't talk about 
just God's word, but also talks about the word of Christ or Christ's word. And it's a different word. That's the Greek word, rima. And guess what the rima is? If God's word is Jesus, what's Jesus' word? It's the church. It's people. And so we'll talk about these two things today. Okay? Uh, I want to read to us verse 1 through 7 again. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer. You can follow along with me if, if you want. It's printed out for you in your bulletin packet. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven. That is to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. And what is Paul talking about? (laughs) When God, when God the Father, the God that we worship, the one and only true God. When he wanted to speak a final word over the world. That word, as our Bible testifies... And as many of you believe, that word was Jesus Christ. I want to read to us another passage. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a few verses, but I think it's really worth it for this point. So uh, just listen as I read. First John, chap, uh, excuse me, John chapter 1, verse 1 and following. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That is a lot of density and truth about the person of Jesus. And this 
is the premier passage which testifies that Jesus was not only a man, but he was also fully God. He was God. He is God. He is God's word. Nothing exists, including you and I, apart from Jesus who made everything, who is in everything and over everything and under everything. It's, it's, it's a... Uh, it's a doxology, if you will, a praise to this second person of what we call the Trinity. God the Father, and then there is Jesus Christ, God's final word spoken for us. Now, I want to ask the question, when is the last time you said the word Jesus? Now, think about that for a second. Have you said Jesus this week? Just the name, the word. You know, as I was writing this, I thought about it. And I realized I don't say the name Jesus very much. And part of it, I realize, is that society and the culture, the, the political ethos around us, it doesn't really encourage that. I feel like I have to look over my shoulder before I say Jesus. This name is scandalous. This name trips people up. This name is inconvenient. This name is not often helpful to the goals I have for a given day. Jesus, Jesus. The Bible says Jesus is Lord. The Bible says to believe in Jesus. What does that mean? Who is Jesus? What is Jesus? And why is his name so scandalous? And I think a main reason that the name of Jesus is so scandalous is that there is an ex- exclusivity to the name and the person of Jesus. And that's what this passage is talking about. And here's what it's saying. We are not helped by having faith in faith. That's a message that you hear in the movies and sometimes books. And it's what we sometimes say to each other. You got to just believe. You got to believe. You got to have faith. Faith is a good thing, so you got to have it. But this passage says it's not faith in faith. And it's not faith in good. There's lots of good things out there. But it's not the good things that are ultimately helpful to us. In fact, it speaks against having faith in good. And it's not, and here, this is, this is where the scandal begins. It's not even faith in God. It's possible to have a tremendous amount of spirituality and faith in God. And believe in God. And trust in God and look to God and think about God and, and, and uh, work God into your life. And yet, Paul says here in Romans 10, it's possible to have faith in God and miss the point of God altogether. He says that would be zeal without knowledge. And Paul knows what he's talking about. There was none more zealous than Paul. 
He was so passionate about God that he was going around setting up ways to get rid of Christians. This was one of my uh, main uh, theological points that I wanted to make when I was a director of church planning. You are not planting churches that preach about God only. Your job in starting a Christian church is to preach Christ and Him crucified. And you're supposed to lift Jesus up. Say the name Jesus. If you have no point at all, just talk about Him. Give people a fair shot at stumbling over Jesus. Get other things out of the way. Most people that claim to reject Christ have never actually encountered Christ. They just stumble on Christians and Christian cultural elements. They can't even get in the door. They're stumbling in the lobby, in the parking lot. They're not actually rejecting Christ. They're just rejecting you. Your sermons are uninteresting. It's boring. It's not thought through. Come on, if, you, if, if we are going to invest a quarter million dollars in you, and you're going to start an organization that represents Christ, say Jesus. Not faith in faith, not faith in good, not faith in God, but faith in Jesus. And what Paul means by this is that everything else in the world, apart from Jesus, there's just two roads. Everything converges to just two roads. It's Jesus, and it's your own way of living, works, righteousness. You are going to say, good is not good enough. I'm going to have to be better. Smart is not good enough. I have to be smarter. You're going to be this Live this life where you're just this existential vacuum sucking everything into your soul and you won't be able to handle the whole of life unless Jesus is part of your thinking. Not just God, not just moral principles, not just your conscience, not just wisdom, not just principles, not just truths, but Jesus. Everything else doesn't work. Life just simplifies at some point to just two things. Everything and Jesus. And you can have zeal without knowledge. You can have this righteousness, this way of justifying yourself and feeling okay and feeling secure, feeling good about your life. And it's not going to work. You're going to fail by the very standards you set up for yourself. And so Paul says that Jesus is the end of the law, that Jesus is righteousness, that all of the uh, law and the prophets, all, everything that was ever written is actually all pointing to Jesus. And it's all about him. And so Jesus said it simply. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And I realized that for me, For me, I have to be born again to this truth. There is a kind of new birth I have to experience to understand this truth. That it's Jesus or it's just failure in life. I don't understand it in my own mind. I don't understand it if I just follow logic or reason. 
but there's a kind of uh, 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 regeneration, a revelation that has to happen in my heart. And this is the center of the Christian faith that we do not come to understand this on our own. We don't rely on ourselves. We don't save ourselves. That somehow Jesus, the very person we have to be able to see in order to choose him, has to do this work in us for us to even begin to ask the questions. And so there's a kind of dependency on Jesus that we bring. And this is what the Christian faith calls being born again. And so Jesus Christ is God's word. And that's the first half of chapter 1. But the second half is also very interesting. And it talks about Christ's word. Let me read for us verse 8 to 15. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Now start listening uh, carefully here. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring news of good things. What Paul is saying here is that vocal cords must produce sound waves and the sound waves must hit our eardrums physically or this thing called faith doesn't happen. Is that what he's saying? No, I don't think so. I don't think Paul is talking about here the mechanics of how we physically hear something, how something enters into our ear canal, travels to the end of our ear canal and stimulates our eardrums and then somehow that gets electronically transited into our brain and we uh, hear this word, physical word, and that word allows us to have some faith in our hearts. That's not what Paul is t- saying. He's not describing a physical thing. Well, then what is Paul talking about? One of the big questions in my life is the question of suffering. If God is good, why is there suffering? If God is all-powerful, why does suffering persist in our world? Why do tragedies and uh, evil and uh, surprises. Why do these, these things happen still if God is a good and powerful God? And I've asked this question for uh, many, many years. And the, I remember the exact moment when I was satisfied. I was reading this book by Walt, uh, Nicholas Walterstaff uh, called Lament for a Son. And he says these words in there. When I lifted my fist towards the heavens... And I demanded an answer. I did not receive a verbal response. But instead I saw the sun hung on a cross, bleeding 
with me. When God wanted to respond to the reality and the persistence of suffering in our world, instead of giving us a verbal explanation, God gave us a suffering servant. He gave us the person of Jesus Christ. And we call that the incarnation. That God was made flesh and took on flesh. The carnal. And not only did he just visit us, but he lived with us. He walked and he was tempted in every way that we are tempted. Tried in every way that we are tried. And he died taking on our suffering. And when I realized that's what God did, there was a satisfaction for me on a deep level. And here's what I realized. That love, when pushed, requires a physical medium so that it can be seen and felt and tasted. That the spiritual world and the physical worlds are flip sides of the very same coin. If you read the book of Revelations, God doesn't do away with earth. He says actually that heaven comes down to earth. And there's going to be a physicality to our eternal existence. That I don't have to give up all the foods and the flavors that I love. That I don't have to say goodbye to the runner's high. I don't have to say goodbye to the loves in my life. That the world that is to come is going to be more real, more palpable than the world that we live in now. That right now we are limited by our physical senses. We don't feel things beyond the nerve endings. But there is a world to come that's even more real. That we can feel even more deeply and see in truer colors than we've ever seen before or can imagine now. Logos is the Greek word uh, that where we get the word logic. And John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is God's word. It's God's logos. But here the word used for the word word is not the same word logos, but it's a different word. It's the word rima. R-H-E-M-A. And In the Greek, the definition is the thing that's spoken by someone who is living. And so if uh, there's a piece of writing and then you die, that's not your rima because you're no longer living. The thing that you can hear enter your eardrums that's spoken by another human being that is also alive. That's a very specific Greek word. That's what's called rima. And that's the word that Paul uses to talk about Christ's word, the word of Christ. And then he goes on to ask the question, how will people call on the name of the Lord unless they believe? And how will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear if there is no preaching? And how will there be preaching if the preachers aren't sent? What's Paul talking about there? Paul is talking about the church. 
the existence of a living, breathing group, a gathered community that belongs to Christ, but not just belongs, but embodies the vision and the authority and the values and the practices, the gathered community of Christ who is able to speak so that those sound waves, either emotionally or physically, can travel so that the love of Christ can be felt. So the love of Christ is tangible and tactile and visible. And you can feel it and you can smell it. You can sit next to Christ. You can experience the words of Christ through the living Rima. We, the church, the local church, we are Christ's Rima. We're the ones who do the sending. We're the ones who do the preaching. We're the ones who are able to give people a shot at faith. Not just in God, not just in good, but in Jesus Christ. That's our mission. As I was thinking about this point, I was thinking about uh, the very, very, very first time that I experienced the presence of Jesus Christ in my life. Uh, I was in uh, elementary school. I think maybe I was six or something. I don't remember. Maybe five. And I remember I fell in church because I, I ran around and that's what I did. And I was bloody. And then I went to my Sunday school teacher, and I can still see this right now as I share this with you. He put his hand on my bloody knee. And I remember thinking, he's touching this grody thing. And he prayed for me. And I don't remember what he prayed, but I remember feeling like God cared about me. That there is this thing called love and I have access to it and it's available to me, for me. And I remember thinking that and feeling that as a little, little kid. And I remember the second time that I experienced the presence of Christ in my life. A friend of mine invited me to a retreat at a church that wasn't my church. And I went and I heard this speaker. And for the weekend, he talked about Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. He flipped every passage on its head and showed me how everything in the whole Bible is about Jesus from beginning to end. And I remember being awed, though I didn't believe, that the Bible, this ancient book, could talk about this one person so consistently. And this man was able to exposit the scriptures in that way. It was amazing to me. I was in high school. And then I remember when I was in college, and this is uh, maybe the, the final time that uh, allowed me to experience uh, rebirth, became a born-again Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. I remember this mentor. He invited me over every week to his house when I was a college student, and we played ping pong for hours. And we'd work up a sweat and an appetite, and then his wife, every week, made me chicken pot pie. And when I got married, I said, Trevor, I need Sandy's recipe. And I gave it to Susie, and the chicken pot pie she makes me to this day is from Sandy Wagon Maker. We are friends on Facebook. And through him, I experienced the presence 
and the consistency and the playfulness of Jesus Christ. And when I went through my dark night of the soul, when my life was completely flatlining, it was Trevor who was there. It's Trevor who loved me. He was a mentor and he was a coach. And I, th- I thought about my parents. And I thought about Susie's parents. They love Susie. They adore Susie. They would do anything for Susie. They did everything for Susie. And they nurtured her and brought her up. And then I remember the moment I stepped down from the aisle. And he took my hand. He took Susie's hand. And he put my hand in Susie's hand. And then he looked at me. Like I was supposed to do something with this. I remember what he said to me. He said, I love this girl. You messed this up. If you messed this up. And so I believed in the love of Christ that was made real and tactile through people. And so when I was in school and my mom told me I was called to be a doctor, I applied to seminaries instead. I wanted to start churches. I've never been a youth pastor. I never took that traditional route. I just wanted to start a church where people can come and stumble on the person of Jesus rather than on Christians and Christianese. And and so the very first thing I ever did as a 22-year-old was start a church. It closed. It did not work out so well. So I got up and I tried again. I started again. And then I tried again. And again, and again, I did it six times over 12 years. And then when I got burnt out from that, I went on to direct church planning for a whole denomination. And then through that organization, I was able to help plant hundreds of churches. Why the church? Why the local church? The local church, they've hurt my feelings. They have taken my money. They've been more trouble often than they're worth. But why? Why are you here? Why do you believe in the local church? What happens at a church? Why sermons? Why preaching? Why this ancient art form in the, in, in the day and age when we can just flip on a device and get everything we need? Why are you here? It's a beautiful day outside. You know, one thing that I love about this gathered place is that when we are come, when we are together like this, when we come together like this, we are emotionally moving towards each other. We are open in a way that we are not when we run into each other on the streets. I can say things from this pulpit and you will sit there and hear it and actually do something with it. It would be helpful to you. If I said the very same things in the hallway, you, you're barely tolerating this, this long-winded guy. But when we are gathered as a church, you're emotionally open and moving towards each other. It's a unique opportunity to hear about Christ. And it resonates, and it cultivates, and it creates faith in you. And when you are able to believe, then you're able to call on the name of the Lord. I love the church. But what I love more is the potential church, who we could be. I think the potential church is so beautiful. 
And that's why I'm in the church business. Now, I have two application points for us. Uh, the first one is rather simple. And I've been doing this this week, and I want to keep doing it this coming week. Is I want you to pause in this Lenten season and this week. And I want to ask you as an application point to appreciate the people in your life. I talked to a couple of mentors this week that I hadn't talked to in a while. And I thanked them for their presence in my life. Would you do that this week? Let them know. You can write an email. You can even send a text message. Say, hey, I was thinking about my life this week. And I appreciate you. You were the person and presence of Jesus Christ in my life at that season. When I should have fallen over, you stood next to me and you held me up. Say that to somebody this week. And then here's a second uh, application point. It's a little bit longer. And uh, I thought I was going to get away with not having to do this. But uh, as I prayed and I talked with the staff, this is... Um, and the leadership team, this is what it's, uh, I think this is a worthy application point. Uh, and if this is offensive to anyone, please pardon uh, me. I, I, uh, uh, I'm doing this in good faith. You are all part of a church revitalization effort here at this church. And you know this, I say this on a regular basis to remind us that we're not here just to uh, partake, but we are here to build and to create and uh, that's why I'm here. I'm here to uh, be the leader and pastor of an organization that is trying to turn around and change the momentum and direction of where we were headed. And I've never done this before. This is brand new to me. I'm learning a ton every week. And working in a nonprofit organization like this is very different than working in, a, uh, uh, in an organization where I would be leading employees but leading volunteers, that's a whole other ballgame. But here's the pathway that I was thinking about this week. And if I think about it, this is what's happening. The first thing I had to do when I came here is I had to earn trust. I had to earn your trust. And it's been about a year and a half. And uh, with many of you, I've begun to earn trust. Some of you are still suspicious and the jury's still off for you. That's fine. I've read that anywhere between three to five years it takes for the typical person to trust a new pastor. Okay? So uh, thank you for those of you who have been able to trust me. Uh, because if you trust me, what it allows me to do is it allows me to uh, catalyze changes in this organization. Trust leads to changes. And Changes require trust because changes represent the unknown. And it also represents the death of what you do know in order for the thing that you do not know to be birthed. And so if you're going to trust me to die to certain things that you love and have known, then you're going to have to trust me. So trust leads to changes. And when good changes are made, that leads to health. Organizationally, personally, it leads to health. And health allows for growth 
to happen. Unhealthy things do not grow. And growth that's based on unhealth will not last. It's not sustainable. So here's trust changes health and growth. All of those things, all four of those things, you know what it takes? It takes time. And that's what I want to ask you for today. I see signs of growth. I see signs of health. I see really, really good changes. And I see trust building in this church. I see it. And I want to ask you, do you see it? Yeah, you do, I think. I think your answer is yes. You can see trust changes health and growth. But what's required for us to turn the full tanker around, to change tracks, we need time. And so in order for us to have time, by the way, did I say five sermons on giving? I meant, I think I meant six. Because that's where I'm headed with this. In order for us to have more time, we need your tithes. Because it's a T word. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we've been the staff and the leadership team. We've been carrying this burden around for a good part of the um, Uh, For several months now, we've been carrying this burden, and we have struggled with how to solve it. Uh, But here is some some detail to the burden that we've been carrying. Uh, Right now, as of today, we are about $70,000 behind in budgeted spending. That means that our spending is outpacing. Our budget is actually under, our spending is under the budget. But what we are spending is uh, $70,000 more than what we are taking in. So we are dipping into our church's reserve fund. And when we are, when we look at why that is so, uh, over the last couple of years, we've lost some, uh, key people, people, key people meaning they were key contributors to our organization. And we can kind of even trace it to three, uh, giving units who used to go to our church, who've left our church now. And they're giving totaled about $70,000. And that's the amount that we are behind. And so I think we're doing pretty good, but uh, we've really taken a hit. And it's uh, as we are looking at the budget for fiscal year uh, 2013, I mean 2014, 2015, uh, we are beginning to uh, worry about how we're going to fix this. Uh, good news is that when we switched over from uh, passing the plates to online giving and having giving boxes in the back, that didn't affect our giving at all. All our research told us it won't affect the giving, and it was true. It didn't affect our giving. We have been consistently $70,000 behind before when we were passing the plates, and now that we're not passing the plates. The bad news is it didn't up our giving either. Uh, so over this next year, with uh, Chris's transition, with Christine's transition, and uh, uh, we really have to figure out how we are going to uh, keep the staff we need and love and uh, to build the church that we want to be. We also have to figure out how to figure out classrooms. As you know, the children's ministry has uh, doubled 
over this last season of ministry. We have to figure out classrooms. And so we're thinking we need to move our staff offices upstairs and have classrooms down here. So we have to take on that project. We have a roof that needs to be fixed in the next two years. We have an elevator as an intergenerational church. We want to uh, have an elevator in our church so those among us for whom it's challenging to climb the stairs can access all parts of the church. Uh, the current budget, as we have put it together, comes out to about $1.1 million. The budget last year uh, was $900,000, but we are behind 70000 in that. And so how do we go from uh, $830,000 to $1.1 million over this next fiscal year? So that's the problem that uh, we have as a staff and as a leadership team and as a church body to solve. And I... I want to use this opportunity to ask you to support your local church, to believe in the mission of this church. The reasons for which we exist, I think, are beautiful. Whether we are doing a beautiful job of that, uh, that's to be answered in your own minds. We are trying to improve. We're trying to continue to create more ministry and better ministry opportunities so that we might be the Rima of Christ, who is the Logos of God. Over this next three weeks, uh, we'll, you get some things in the bulletin, and you'll hear me speak uh, five minutes each week. I'll say, this is an opportunity, this is a way to support and give, and I'll give you very practical, uh, easy ways to help uh, support the ministries of this local church. And uh, I hated hearing pastors talk about money, but here I am. And uh, I hope you'll forgive me if that's offensive to any of you. But um, uh, I think uh, to be the local church, to be the physical church, to be the physical presence of Christ here on earth, who is the very word of God, this is what it looks like. This is what it costs. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Please pray with me. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word has been passed down to us through the generations. And that in it are the words of God, which speak of Christ, which validate the church. So I pray for us as a local church that we might uh, be tuned in to the ways that you're wanting to rebirth us and to revitalize us as a tangible palpable presence of Jesus here in this community and beyond. I thank you that we have been called with this task to be the Rima of Christ. I pray that you would speak to each of us about how we can play a part in that through our service, through our giving, through our presence. Encourage us and build us up, we pray. 
And we thank you for the ways that you have loved on us as a church and as individuals through the presence of people in our lives. God, they have been your servants, your messengers, your prophets. We thank you for them. May your word go forth from this place. We look to you in Jesus' name.